The Word of God for us this morning is found in the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 24. Give your reverent attention to this God's holy word as I read it to you. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they walked As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. May God bless this, his holy word, that we might understand it and put it into practice in our lives. Let us pray. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. As a cosmonaut of the Soviet Union, Sergei Krigalov held a privileged position. He had it all, fame, success, 
and fortune. He was a member of the Communist Party. He was a citizen of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. He was a friend and confidant of Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev. He enjoyed all the privileges of being a cosmonaut of that country. He earned 500 rubles a month, many times the average wage in the USSR in those days. But in April of 1991, Krigalov left the country at a most inopportune time. He was launched into space to orbit for four months. But while he was in orbit, huge changes occurred back on Earth. The nation that he left behind collapsed. And with it came problems getting the cosmonaut back to Earth. Krikalov had to stay in orbit an extra six months until Russian scientists got all the science and the politics figured out. Imagine how he must have felt when he finally came home and stepped onto solid ground for the first time in over 310 days. Home wasn't the same. His country no longer existed. In his place were several nations vying with each other to emerge as separate entities from the 75-year-old, now defunct, dead and gone USSR. Gorbachev, his friend, had been replaced by an upstart politician named Boris Yeltsin. And the Communist Party was out of control and out of power and in disrepute. And Krigalov's hometown of Leningrad had been renamed St. Petersburg. His 500-ruble salary, once enough to keep him and his family in luxury, had been reduced by inflation so that now it was scarcely enough to buy him a hamburger at the McDonald's in Moscow. Everything had changed for him. Sergei Krigalov's story is a parable of the human condition before and after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, who was once dead, now lives... Everything that matters has been changed. It cannot be the same. Death has been defeated by life. Sadness has been replaced by joy. Despair has been overcome by hope. Guilt has been erased by forgiveness. And futility has been conquered by purpose. A scripture does not shrink from graphically describing what happened to Jesus on Good Friday. All the horror of this ugly execution is there to be read. The beating, the flogging, the whipping before he was nailed to the cross, and then that cross hoisted and dropped with a thud into the shallow hole that would hold it upright. This was not play acting. This is real ugly Death, the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then that loud shout, it is finished, and Jesus breathes his last. The swoon theory that makes it into the media every year about this time, just in time to give simple-minded people a reason not to believe at Easter time, doesn't fit with the facts that we have in the gospel account.
Jesus does more than faint to be, to be revived later. He died. J. Vernon McGee was for many years the pastor of the Church of the Open Door in L.A. He's a, he was a radio preacher. He died some 26 years ago, but every day around the globe you can hear his radio broadcast. One day, J. Vernon McGee received a letter from a woman that said, Our preacher said that on Easter... Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health later. What do you think? Well, McGee replied, Dear sister, beat your pastor with a whip for 39 heavy strokes. <laughs> Nail him to a cross. Hang him up there in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his side. Embalm him and then put him in an airless tomb for three days. And then see what happens. Jesus did not seem to be dead. He was dead. His life ended once in an ugly death. And life is not expected again where death has taken up its reign. Ken Davis writes about a woman who looked out her window one day and saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of a neighbor's rabbit. Now, her family did not get along well with those neighbors, so this was going to be something of a disaster. She grabbed a broom and went outside and pummeled the dog until it dropped the now extremely dead rabbit out of its mouth. And she panicked. She didn't know what to do. So she grabbed the rabbit and took it inside and gave it a bath and blow-dried it to its original fluffiness. And he comb she combed it until that rabbit was looking good, really good. And she snuck into the neighbor's yard and propped the rabbit back up in the rabbit cage. Now, an hour later, she heard screams coming from next door. And so she went next door and she asked, What had happened? What's going on? And they said, Our rabbit, our, our bunny... He died two weeks ago. We buried him, and now he's back. <laughs> well, all the bathing and fluffing of that dead bunny could never bring it back to life. It was really dead, as was Jesus. Dead and buried shut up behind that stone, but then God moved in with his power and the once dead Jesus became alive again. John Ortberg commented on that story of Ken Davis and he connected it to the resurrection this way. He said, people in the ancient world knew dead rabbits tend to stay dead. And they knew that dead rabbis tend to stay dead. Life defeats death. The dynamic life force contained in the smallest of seeds is just the faintest reflection of the tremendous power of God which restored life to the dead body of Jesus. His body had been put away in a tomb cut from rock. And the entrance had been sealed with a large stone. And Pilate had 
posted a guard and given them instructions, make it as secure as you can. But nothing, not even death itself, is secure against the power of God. No, no can stand against his yes. He speaks that word, and in an instant where there is death and seemingly only the possibility and prospect of death, there is now life. Jesus moves and throws off the strips of linen in which he had been wrapped, and he stands up and he walks out of the grave. Alive once and for all time and eternity, alive. And here's the first and greatest result of the resurrection. Death is defeated by life. Again, this year, since last Easter, some of us have stood at the grave of someone we love. And apart from Christ's resurrection, every human experience says that that is the end of that person. This is the stopping point. From here on, no more life. No more relationship. Done. Finished. Gone. But what happened in that grave outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago forever alters the meaning of the graves of those we love who have died trusting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Jesus is the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now think how ludicrous and empty those words would be if we could go to the grave of the one who said them and find his body. Could we do that, his audacious claim to be resurrection and life to those who believe would be a cruel deceit, a hurtful joke. His empty tomb, you see, validates his claim. The message of Easter is that death is not the final word. In Christ and his resurrection, life has overcome the power of death, not only for Jesus, but for all who trust him. Death is defeated by life. This is the resurrection result from which all the other results flow. A second result, sadness has been replaced by joy. You couldn't find anyone sadder than the women who came to the tomb in the early hours of that first Easter. Remember, to them it was not Easter yet. It was just the day after the day after the tortured death of their friend and leader, Jesus. Death, not life, was their focus. And so sadness, not joy, was their frame of mind. They had come as soon as custom allowed to do what they could for Jesus, not realizing what he had already done for them. And they came with spices to anoint his body in this last act of devotion, probably planning to say a prayer and to sing a psalm for the safe repose of Jesus' soul. You see, they were prepared for a funeral. They had no thought of playing minor roles in this great story of God's greatest act, the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. Now, it could be argued that the followers of Jesus, including these women, ought to have had some hope of a resurrection. It's clear from the Gospels that Jesus had taught them more than once what was going to happen to them. On several occasions, he had told them that he would be killed and that on the third day he would rise from the dead. But I imagine what had happened was that their minds said no so loudly to the news of his impending death when they heard Jesus say that, that they couldn't hear the triumphant yes that followed that awful news. Mary Magdalene and the other women did not remember the resurrection as they came to the tomb that first morning of that week. They were profoundly sad. And they thought permanently sad. But contrast how they came with how they left. In the middle of a funeral, they were surprised by joy. During World War II, a young soldier named William Roth was on patrol in France. A few weeks before Christmas, he and his patrol were overcome and captured by enemy forces during the Battle of the Bulge. And Roth's family was notified that he was missing in action. And several months passed, and the family heard nothing from him or about him. They didn't know whether he was dead or alive, but they presumed the worst, that he was dead. They prepared to go to the Easter services at their church in that small town. And at that time, the post office in that town stayed open just for an hour on Sunday morning so that people coming into town for church could get their mail. And as they were going to church on that Easter, their hearts still heavy with the probability that their son and brother was dead, they stopped in the post office to see if they had received any mail. And there in their mailbox, can you imagine the scene, a a rural post office with those little mailboxes with the combinations that uh, you turn to open the door to get your mail? As they came to their mailbox, they saw a postcard. And they pulled it out, and it was a postcard from William Roth, their son and brother, saying that he was alive. He was being held prisoner in Germany. He'd been placed with other prisoners and shuttled around the country from place to place in boxcars. Fortunately, he spoke enough German to make it possible for him to send that postcard with good news about his safety to his family. Now, can you imagine being part of that family? Imagine the the joy and the depth of meaning that church held for them that Sunday as they went to celebrate Easter, that Jesus is risen from the dead. They celebrated that their son was alive. And I say to you, whatever sadness you have, grasping the good news of the resurrection can replace it with joy. Believing in Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, can bring joy to you. Bring your sadness 
to the empty tomb. Meet Jesus, the risen Lord. Jesus, our Lord, is not dead. He is alive and turns sadness to joy. A third resurrection result. Despair has been overcome by hope. Now, it's hard to imagine a deeper sense of hopelessness than that which darkened the lives of Jesus' followers in the hours just after the crucifixion. It had been a roller coaster kind of week. On Sunday, they had followed their teacher and leader into Jerusalem in that little parade of triumph. And after two or three years of resisting their accolades, Jesus welcomed the cheers of the crowd. And he goes into the temple and he asserts his authority as he drives the desecrators of the temple away. And he stood up to the religious authorities who questioned his commission from God, his identity as the Son of God. And then after those victorious acts come the awful events of betrayal and arrest and that sham of a trial and finally his execution. You see, a roller coaster week, exhilaration followed by depression, and his disciples had been along for the ride. Their hopes had flown high, only to be dashed and destroyed. And the two disciples who walked the road to Emmaus that Sunday afternoon spoke for all the disappointed followers of Jesus when they said, We had hoped, we had hoped that. He might be the one to redeem Israel. You see, great expectations canceled by death. Life has a way of robbing us of dreams, of throwing our hopes back in our faces. And enough of that happens to make many of us quit looking toward the future. It causes us to live in the past with memories of what used to be, rather than to look to the future for what yet might be. The blazing light of God's resurrection power shines into the dark world full of people without hope. To those who have given up comes this word from God, nothing is impossible with me. And to those who have abandoned dream after dream, To make an uneasy peace with just getting by, the resurrection brings a transfusion of hope that makes it possible to dream again. If Jesus rose from the dead, what else might be possible? To those walking the Emmaus road of life with hearts heavy and eyes downcast, the risen Lord comes with resurrection power for their hopes and their lives and their dreams. And when the world says, abandon all hope, the Lord who conquered death says, hope again, hope on. Here's another resurrection result. Guilt has been erased by forgiveness. Now, those first followers of Jesus had a lot to feel guilty about that first Easter. They did not perform well in that last week of Jesus' life. One turned out to be a traitor. Another denied not once but three times that he even knew Jesus. 
When Jesus had prophesied that all would flee from him in his moment of need, they to a man said, not me, not me, not us. And some even said, Lord, if if need be, we will even die for you. And then the pressure came, and what happened? They split. No one but a few of the women even stayed around to see how it was going to turn out. And so mingled with their grief and the loss of their leader was their guilt for their failures. And then the risen Lord appears to them. As they sat in a darkened upper room, their minds reeling, trying to comprehend all the events of the past few days, as they nursed their hurt and their anger and their confusion, as they felt the dull, aching pain of their guilt, Jesus comes to them. And that he came to them is, itself, is in itself remarkable. If I were Jesus, and you've had many opportunities over the years to be glad that I'm not Jesus, but if I were Jesus, I would have wanted nothing more to do with them, or with any of the human race for that matter. I would have concluded, if I were Jesus, who needs this? And with my resurrection, I would have retreated to the refuge, the sanctuary of heaven. I would not have re-entered the human arena where I had suffered such agony and humiliation at the hands of people. But Jesus came back to his followers. And he came with a gracious word. Now, had I been him, my words would not have been so gracious. I would have talked with them sternly about being deserted, about being abandoned, about being left for dead. I would have let them know how shamefully they had treated me. But that's not what Jesus did. He came back. And he came with a gracious word. And that word is peace. Peace. Three times in John's account of the appearance of Jesus to his followers after the resurrection, Jesus says, peace. That's the first word of the risen Lord to his people. And it's his continuing word to his people, peace. Some of you even as you sit here this morning, are feeling guilty. Coming to church has a way of doing that to people. You would just as soon not meet the risen Lord. For to look on his face reminds you of your guilt. You've rejected the God who made you. You've been disloyal. You've declared your independence from him to live life as you want to live it. You have sinned. And Jesus stands among us this morning, and he speaks nary a word of accusation. Rather, he says peace. He has forgiveness for the sinner. He has forgiveness For you, he welcomes back the prodigal. He welcomes you back. He embraces the one who has spurned him. He embraces you. It says in John's gospel that he said peace to them, and then he showed them his hands 
and his side. What's that all about? We've thought of it as just proof of the crucifixion to Thomas and others who doubted, proof of his identity. And it is that, I suppose, but it is so much more when we understand it with the word which accompanied it. He said, peace, and showed them his hands and side. The mark of the nails and the wound of the spear. My death paid the penalty, he is saying. In that ugliness is the beauty of God's forgiveness. Proof of that peace is here in my hands and in my side. So stop glossing over your guilt. Uh, Stop playing those mind games we all play to kind of forgive ourselves. Own up to your guilt and bring it to Jesus. Find in him the crucified Lord and the risen Savior. Find in him God's forgiveness. And lastly, the the fifth resurrection result. Futility has been conquered by hope. Without the resurrection, the crucifixion would have marked the end of a life well lived, but in the end, a life which merely demonstrates the futility of good vying with evil, of truth contesting with falsehood, of light attempting to conquer darkness. He lived a good life, and then he died. That would have been Jesus' epitaph. And he would have taken his place in the list of great teachers who tried to change the system, but in the end failed and were done in by the system. But the resurrection shows that what to all appearances was a conclusion was just the culmination of the first act. God's purpose in Jesus did not end with the crucifixion. What was thought to be the end was, in a sense, the beginning. God showed his power in raising him from the dead, and that power infuses not only Jesus, but all who are his people. Paul said it this way, Since the Spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead lives in you, He will, by that same Spirit, bring life to your mortal bodies. You see, we are God's forever people, his eternal family. We're destined for life with him. Resurrection awaits us. What is life about then? It's not, as the bumper stickers used to say, life is hard and then you die. The promise of resurrection puts life in a new perspective. The Apostle Paul spent the entire 15th chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians answering people who did not believe in the resurrection. And in verse 57 of that long chapter, he argued convincingly that we will be raised because Jesus was raised. And then in the last verse of that long chapter, he gives the therefore, the so what, the how then ought we to live of it all. 
Paul says, Christ has defeated death. Therefore, my dear ones, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, as you look around you, Easter does not seem to have had much effect. I thought about that on my way to church this morning, driving down Torrance Boulevard, people going about the usual Sunday morning stuff, some early risers making their way to the beach on foot or in bicycles, some cars with surfboards on their top. It seems that Easter makes no difference. Those people were unaware of any difference that the risen Lord makes, not evidencing any resurrection results. And Easter's, including the first one, seem to be pretty much without effect to most people. Oh, the good news is that candy will be at half price this afternoon. Uh, Chocolate bunnies and jelly beans at a discount. But for most people, no resurrection results. But you, you are different. You are the Easter people. You have met the risen Christ. You see him. And now life defeats death. And joy replaces sadness and hope overcomes despair and forgiveness erases guilt and purpose conquers futility. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. Sing with me number 217. It's on that song sheet. It's in your hymnal. 217 will stand as we sing this song.